Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3, on air and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official. Austin Cross with you on this Friday, as always. Thanks so much for hanging out. Coming up, it is a Food Friday double feature. I'm so excited for this. Focusing on two spots where you can nosh during Ciclavia on Melrose this Sunday. One is Maison Mateau, and the other one is Osteria La Buca. Hopefully I said those both right, but stick around for that. They are going to be in studio. We're going to try some yummy things today. But we start with the controversial gondola proposal for Dodger Stadium. The project overcame a major hurdle yesterday when the Metro Board of Directors approved a final environmental impact report with several stipulations, I should say. We're going to dig into those conditions in just a second, but I want to hear from you on this, especially if you live, work in the Chinatown area or you regularly attend Dodger games what your hopes or concerns are about the gondola, what your thoughts are on the conditions that have been placed on that project. We're going to talk about them in a second, but you might have read them already. But if uh, you have thoughts, 866-893-5722 is our number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. We have three voices to bring into this conversation, including two members of Metro's board of directors, but let's start with Rachel Uranga, who covers transportation and mobility for the LA Times. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Austin. So I understand there was a lot of turnout, a lot of passionate testimony. Can you just set the scene for us ahead of the vote? Tell us what we saw and heard from residents. Sure. Well, um, Metro Board was asked to approve an environmental analysis that would basically give clearances to the aerial gondola, and for really years um, prior to this, behind the scenes, what's happened is the developers of the gondola have really been um, really been seeking community support, and on the other side, people who oppose the gondola live directly under the gondola or where the gondola is going to go through, which is historic Chinatown um, around Union Station, and there's also some public housing um, right by there. Um, they, they have voiced concern that the gondola is going to gentrify their community and not really do what the developers say it's going to do, and that is to reduce traffic. So let's dig into some of the conditions while we have you here. Uh, I understand there were 31 of them, but could you just tell us some of the top-line ones and what the goals were there? Sure. I think one of the biggest criticisms and concerns has been that Metro is going to be on the hook to pay for the gondola should the developer not be able to. And I should say before any of this, it was first proposed in 2018, um, and the people behind it was Frank McCourt, the former Dodger right. owner. 
um, who, who, who brought the Dodgers in, into bankruptcy court. So people are very uh, skeptical of him. Um, one of the conditions is really to ensure that they're not on, on taxpayers are not on the hook to pay for this. It would be a private development. Um, there's lots of other conditions, including giving uh, people in the community benefits. One of the biggest pieces, the community benefits package, putting some set aside should the housing, <clears throat> the cost of housing increase around there, um, ensuring there's jobs for people around there, free rides from people for. Um, people that live there to Dodger Stadium or on the gondola, um, and and really trying to ensure that it doesn't place an undue burden on the community there. Uh, really quickly, Rachel, what's next for the project? Well, the project, it, 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 it climbed its first hurdle, but still has a lot more to go. It's going to go to the Los Angeles City Council. The project has three stops. One is at Union Station, one is next to the Los Angeles Historic Park, and then the other one would end in Dodger Stadium. And <clears throat> it's going to get, it's going to need permits, approvals from Los Angeles City, and where there's already been some opposition from one of the councilwomen, uh, Eunice Hernandez. It's going to need clearances from Caltrans because it goes over the 110 freeway, as well as from the California uh, State Park. That's Rachel Uranga, who covers transportation and mobility for the Los Angeles Times. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Let's hear now from L.A. County Metro board member and Los Angeles County supervisor representing the 4th District, Janice Hahn. Supervisor Hahn, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, good morning, Awesome, Good to be with you. So as we just heard, a lot of people showed up at Metro headquarters. You heard hours of testimony. Ultimately, you abstained in yesterday's vote why did you do that? Well, you know, I've never really loved this project. Um, it's not a metro project. I was a little um, disturbed that uh, our agency even got, you know, kind of drug into this. Uh, it was an unsolicited proposal uh, by Frank McCourt uh, to build this, and we ended up being the agency that had to <clears throat> move it forward by approving, you know, the the uh, EIR. Um, I am a Metro board member because I'm trying to bring real public transportation to the residents of Los Angeles County. Specifically, I am all in on the Southeast Gateway Line, which is formerly known as the West Santa Ana Branch, uh, to bring real transportation to the underserved area between Artesia and downtown Los Angeles. That's what I am focused on. And even though we were told there would really be no staff time, um, we would get reimbursed if, in fact, there was some staff time, we just take yesterday's meeting, right? That entire meeting was taken up by this issue. Um, and while I really love the fact that Hilda Solis, my colleague who represents the area, put in you know close to 30 conditions, I think that's why I abstained, right? I, I didn't really want to vote no on that. I mean, those are good conditions to exist. And the other thing that I've fought for are these Dodger Express <clears throat> buses, right? Mm. That's also real public transportation. I want to expand those. I want to make them permanent. I want to make sure Metro funds those. Um, so that was also part of one of the conditions. 
so I couldn't in all good conscience vote yes, but I didn't want to vote against all the work you know, that Hilda Solis had put into requiring uh, the developer to, to uh, have a real community benefits package. But at the end of the day, again, I abstain because I just don't love this project, and it's not a metro project. Talking right now with L.A. County Metro Board Member and Los Angeles County Supervisor representing the 4th District, Janice Hahn and Supervisor Hahn. Of course, there is some thought that because uh, this was proposed uh, in close connection with Dodgers owner Frank McCourt, that there's maybe some hope that if this passes, that he could develop uh, the parking lots near Dodger Stadium. Um, and looking at some of the numbers, the backers of the gondola say it would ferry about 5,000 people per hour to the games. You want real public transit. Do you believe that 5,000 is an accurate number of what could really be expected? Or are you even skeptical about how much buy-in we get from people when it comes to it? You know, I am a little skeptical with those numbers. Again, I don't think we really know um, ultimately what this project will mean uh, to to the community. <clears throat> you know, the, <clears throat> Dodgers only have, what, 81 home games. Uh, I don't think it's going to take as many cars off the road uh, as they're estimated. I even heard an estimate of just taking about 600 cars off the road. Again, I think we would do a better job of increasing the Metro Dodger Express buses, which are very convenient and also free uh, if you're going to a Dodger game. So I think it's a little bit um, over-promised. Um, and, you know, again, you know, with all due respect to Frank McCourt, really, he's a parking lot owner who happened to get a team that came with the parking lot around Dodger Stadium. Uh, and there's not a great deal of love for him uh, with real Dodger fans because of what he, he did to that team when he was the owner. So I don't know uh, what we can really expect, but I do know if this project goes forward, and by the way, I think it's got some huge hurdles, right? It's got to go through the L.A. City Council where the biggest opponent who represents the district, Eunice Hernandez, um, represents them. Then it has to go to the State Parks Commission and I think even Caltrans. And then ultimately, eventually, I think it does come back to Metro for a final approval, uh, but it has a long way to go with a lot of hurdles. Um, so um, I think if it ever does get passed and approved, this package of community benefits will ultimately um, enrich and empower the community, not just the gondola project by itself. It's the conditions and restrictions and hopes that Hilda Solis put on the developer of this project. I wish we could do those community benefits without the project. And by the way, I think all of us Metro board members will be forever grateful to Hilda Solis because she set a new bar on all of our transportation projects. Every one of our transportation projects to offer a community benefit to, to the surrounding region, whether it's, you know, business interruption funds, uh, you know, or, or local jobs or, you know, economic development, uh, transit-oriented uh, housing. I mean, there's a lot of benefits that go with real public transportation. And I think at the end of the day, ironically, um, the Gondola Project might be the model uh, that we use uh, for the rest of the projects going forward. 
That's Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn, who represents the 4th District. She's also Metro Board's first vice chair. Supervisor Hahn, thank you so much for coming on. Supervisor Hahn is also striking a chord in our Instagram channel right now, LAS Official, where uh, the conversation is also happening. But if you're affected as well, 866-893-5722 if you have thoughts. Also on the line with me. Ara Nigerian, Glendale City Council member, also a board member for the Metro Board of Directors. Welcome to you. Good morning. After all was said and done, you approved the environmental impact report uh, in contrast with Supervisor Han, who we just heard from. Why did you vote to approve it? Well, so there were really two parts to our uh, decision making yesterday. Uh, the first one was to certify the EIR, and uh, as was alluded to, uh, this was a task that Metro took upon itself to be the lead agency, and I don't think we've ever done that before. Obviously, for our own projects, we're the lead agency, uh, but this was, as was stated, this is a private, unsolicited project, and Metro, for whatever reason, five years ago said, we'll do the the applications. So... The, uh, you know, to dig into the details of the EIR, the only uh, impact that could not be mitigated was noise during construction. Uh, all the other impacts, and there's a list of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, close to 20 uh, that are analyzed, uh, historic resources, vibrations, light, uh, traffic, parking, uh, fumes, etc. those were all uh, able to be mitigated during the uh, construction and operation of the project. So with just that one factor of noise during construction, I felt that the benefits of this gondola uh, far outweighed the negative impacts that the noise would cause during the course of construction. The second uh, decision we had to make was, does this advance transit uh, in the region? That's what we call the PUC, the Public Utilities Code uh, certification or approval? And the answer uh, to me was, yes, it does. Now, uh, whether it's 4,000 or 5,000 uh, riders, I don't think that's as critical. I think what's going to happen is folks who perhaps have an inkling to take the, uh, the tram will come to Union Station, uh, and they're going to be at Union Station, and then they're going to have two options. The option will be to take the tram or to take the Dodger Express buses. And let's be clear, people are not getting turned away from Dodger Express buses. The current service that we have serves every single person that wants to get to and from the game. And I know that because I take it. Um, so increasing service on our express buses isn't really an issue in, in my regard. But what I think this will do is it will encourage people once they're there for the gondola. Let's say they take it the first game. But they also see, hey, I've got buses I can jump into as well. It won't be as exciting. It won't be as uh, such a great view, taking a bus as opposed to the gondola. But I'm going to take the, the express anyway. So I think it does serve the purpose of advancing transit. The other, I mean, let me ask you, let me just jump in really quickly sure. there and reintroduce you talking right now with Ara Najari and Glendale City Council member, also a board member for the Metro Board of Directors. It sounds like you think that this is overall uh, a, a positive uh, for the area, for the community. There's, of course, a lot of concern 
uh, within the communities that live nearby about what that could mean for them, uh, how they could be priced out. And I'll also say, you know, when you think about this project overall, especially, you know, as an Angelino, we realize that, you know, not everybody's really hot for any idea of public transit. So there's already competition with just driving when it comes to uh, attending anything happening at Dodger Stadium. I guess when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, one, it's a good possibility that, uh, you know, people might not opt to do it even if it's there. And the other side is despite all the efforts taken to protect people who are worried about their rents going up or possibly getting priced out, the likelihood is strong that that could still happen. Given kind of the risks on both sides here of it maybe not being as popular as, as one would think, but also the very real possibility that people could and, and likely will get priced out if this was to come to be, you still think that it's a positive overall? Oh, I definitely do. And I think what happened was there was so much – um, opposition to this uh, gondola plan. Uh, Hilda Solis, uh, kudos to her, as well as Mayor Bass, uh, really threw everyone a curveball. And at last week's meeting, uh, the committee meeting where this was first presented, they uh, put these 31 conditions, which are which have never been placed anywhere close to this number on any other project that Metro has done, let alone uh, let alone a, a private entity. I mean, we're talking about things like uh, safety uh, within a thousand feet of the entire line. We're talking about uh, low housing, increasing uh, affordable housing. We're talking about increasing loans. There's going to be a loan for businesses in that area where they can, if they want to improve, they can do that. Uh, we're talking about jobs. We're talking about counseling for, for school children to prevent recidivism, uh, counseling for those who are on the borderline of homelessness and perhaps getting into criminal activity. I mean, this is unheard of. Let me tell you, at, for sure in Los Angeles, perhaps nationwide. And I think this curveball came, and uh, I think the opponents swung and, and missed it because um, it is going to so improve the area that uh, – now, okay, so everyone's thinking, well, now, oh, well, that's gentrification by definition. Well, if keeping a place safer, cleaner, providing jobs and loans for banks and counseling to children and adults, if that's gentrification, well, perhaps we're painting it in, in a too dark a light. Aaron Ajarian, Glendale City Council member, also a board member for the Metro Board of Directors, voted in favor of the gondola project. We also heard earlier from Supervisor Janice Hahn of the 4th District, uh, who's the first vice chair of the Metro Board of Directors. We've got to close there. I should mention on the line who gave us a call. Fortunately, we don't have the time for it. John Christensen, uh, founding member of L.A. Parks Alliance, uh, says that they're going to take the a EIR to court. Uh, they think it's fatally flawed. There are aspects of it that are illegal. We're definitely going to stay on top of this conversation for you here on AirTalk. I'm Austin Cross. It's AirTalk on a Friday. When we come back, why don't we hang out anymore? We're going to talk about it. Stick around. Stick around. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. Yeah, we don't. Why not? We're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, we're also live streaming right now, Instagram, LAS official, where you can join our conversations. In about 15 minutes, I want you to know we have a Food Friday double feature. You might have heard that Ciclavia is coming to Melrose this weekend. So we are spotlighting two spots to nosh along the bike route. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's going to be something to see for that. That is just ahead. But the question that we're looking at right now is, when was the last time you hung out with a friend? Now, if you're thinking too hard about that question right now, just know that a lot of people probably are. Americans are hanging out far less than at any point in history. And yeah, COVID plays a part for sure. But the drop-off started a very long time ago. So the question that we're looking at is what's happening? What effect is this having on us here in the U.S.? Joining me to discuss Jeremy Noble, author of Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. Welcome to you, Jeremy. Thanks, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here. Also on the line with us, Anna Goldfarb, author of Modern Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. Anna, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. And for folks who are listening in, I just love the excitement. It's kind of contagious. For folks who are listening in, I want to hear from you. Uh, if you've seen your social communities change, and if so, what's changed? Was it the pandemic? Maybe you just like staying in right now, but what's changed? Your friend group? How often you go out? What have you noticed? Maybe how do you even find a connection? So we're casting a wide net here, but we want to hear about you. 866-893-5722 is the number so you can join our conversation. Well, Jeremy, I just want to start by asking about America historically so we can contextualize this because I get the sense that we used to be pretty good at connections. If you think about, I know I see a lot of Masonic lodges, for example, that uh, are now kind of event spaces, but that's just one example of people used to connect and meet and hang out. When did we start to see the strong connections that we had in this country change? Well, Austin, I think you're quite right in pointing to the fact that whatever's going on was going on before the pandemic. I mean, we track certain markers for social connection and opportunities like number of people living alone in the country, and that's going up. 
number of people who belong to religious organizations, traditional opportunities to connect, and that's going down. But there are other things going on too, particularly how we relate to other people, whether we feel comfortable engaging, having those conversations. Mm. So there are a lot of factors and it's a bit of a perfect storm right now. Oh, wait. Okay. So say more about that, how we relate to people. That has really caught my attention. Sure. Like when you think about, okay, look at, you know, are we connecting and meeting with friends as much as before? That sounds like a simple question, but it's actually the tip of a very interesting iceberg. Below the surface are bigger questions of do we feel comfortable connecting, sharing thoughts and feelings with other people? Do we feel hesitant, uncertain? Will we, will we be accepted or will we be rejected? So as we know, we live in divisive times. And so perhaps not a surprise that people are more cautious than ever in forming and pursuing the kind of friendships that allow us to be in touch on a day-to-day -day basis. I want to point out our Instagram channel at LAS Official, where always Angel says, I like my bed more than I like people. I think that there's a lot of people, maybe <laughs> Angel, who are feeling that way. Is there any one thing, Jeremy, though, that we can point to to say, this is what caused us to become more apprehensive about having difficult conversations with each other or even just seeing each other to begin with? Because, I mean, to me... And, and this kind of echoes a conversation we had last week on AirTalk, but there's a, such a big change that happened, say, in the 1960s, post-Vietnam era. We stopped trusting all the systems around us. We even noticed that TV changed because, like, the rural purge happened, right? Then it was no longer, you know, Bonanza and, and Green Acres, you know, and these good shows. Uh, and it kind of reflected a shift in us a little bit. But is there any one thing or was it a series of things that kind of – broke us apart and broke apart that social cohesion? I think it is unfortunately not a single thing. And as a result, there's no, no single silver bullet. But I think there, there, there are four factors that we should keep in mind when we think about what's going on with our social connection. The first is what's going on with us as individuals, our mental health, our physical health. Do we feel comfortable in the life stage we're in and even trying to connect with other people or does something hold us back? So it could be as simple as, as hearing acuity, right? If you can't hear people, do you really wanna have active conversations and so on or visual acuity and so on, or are we burdened by an illness? So these are all individual factors. But then what often get, gets in play here are relationships themselves. Like when we want friends, what do we expect and imagine from those friendships? Are they, are they fulfilling the same roles in our lives that perhaps they did 20 years ago, let alone 50, right? So relationships mm. themselves, are they imbued with empathy and connection or would we rather just lie on our comfortable mattress? The third factor is community. And this is very interesting. Where do we have opportunities to meet other people? Is it the so-called third space of coffee houses or libraries that have places where you're allowed to talk? Or do we have to get really creative and really particular in finding the community opportunities to connect? And finally, society itself. What are our norms and values around connecting? You know, well, how does technology either connect us or as many people feel, disconnect us? So unfortunately, not one factor. Technology, I think, in many ways helped disconnect us. But let me reintroduce you right now, talking with Jeremy Nobel, 
uh, author of Project Unlonely Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. And we'd love to hear from you, 866-893-5722. If you've noticed your social communities change, why has it changed? Was it the pandemic? Maybe you just learned that you like staying in. Maybe you learned something about the people that you spend a lot of time with. And with that said, let's talk to Dorothy in Temple City. Dorothy, what's changed for you? Uh, in 2020, I used to be a very social person. And then uh, COVID happened. But in addition to COVID, which was actually more telling for me and changed my values more, not my values, but made me realize my values more, is um, the social unrest of 2020 and realizing mm. who was not speaking up about Black Lives Matter and who was okay with sitting there while people were being hurt. And I was not okay with that. And realizing the network of people that are okay with uh, inequality, I guess, it was very prevalent. And in addition to that, I also realized after the process um, of realizing that everything was changing, I realized that I'm neurodivergent as well. Wow. So that also um, changed the way that I move in life in a positive way. That's Dorothy in Temple City. And to respond to one of our commenters on our Instagram live at uh, LAS official uh, Gatel underscore GT says, the internet is the only reason I'm connected, actually. But I will say that in the same case as Dorothy, what I witnessed in 2020, 2021, but you probably saw too, uh, was a lot of people disagreeing over uh, COVID, COVID restrictions, vaccinations, and then the racial reckoning just kind of poured the gasoline on top of all of that. So I saw the internet actually as a tool that hastened uh, the breakup of friendships. Uh, let's go to Anna Goldfarb, author of Modern Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. Anna, so a lot more people are alone. Are they also lonely? Well, loneliness to me means lack of meaning. It means feeling, does it even matter if I go to this event or not? Does, does my friendship even matter to the people that I admire and cherish? Um, mm. That's what loneliness is to me. It's a lack of mattering. And, you know, we're, we're talking about society. We live in a postmodern, hyperfluid society. This is historically new. Hmm. Humans have never existed in a hyperfluid society before. Wait, say more about so hyperfluid. We, what? How does how does that work? What is that? Well, you know that means that our social networks resemble a spoke or like a bicycle wheel. Well, hmm. we're we're in the middle, and we have branches of of people that don't know each other. They only know us. They only have common history with us. We have our childhood friends, our school friends, our career friends, the first job we had, the second job we had, the third job we had. None of them know each other. So in a hyperfluid society, there are pros. Like it means we have unlimited choice of which friends we can select. We have, it's like a supermarket. You go in, you can get anything you want. But that also means it's easier to shed friends because, oh, you know, gosh. if you pick friends based on interest. You know, if you want to be friends with all the goths in your community, and then you decide you don't <laughs> like goth music anymore, you're, it's easy to shed them. You can just pick up and find new friends that are into, you know, whatever you're into. Um, so this unlimited choice, it's inevitable that people are going to feel disconnected because there's no cohesion to our social 
our social networks. Um, that's what the lodges that you mentioned gave us was you, you didn't really have to plan things. The, the lodge took care of it. We're having an event, we just show up. But now the onus is on us to create meaning with each of our friends from all different parts of our life that don't know each other. It's more work and it is harder. Talking right now with Anna Goldfarb. I mean, I feel so seen right now, Anna. I know, <laughs> Just the right? way you're describing <laughs> that. I was like, oh, yeah, I got like, those oh, friends yeah. and I got those friends and they don't know yeah. each other. And uh, and I could definitely see how that would make it easier to cut off a friendship. I mean, before we go to – because we have a few callers here, but I got to ask you, is that necessarily a bad thing viewed in light of – you know, whether alone and lonely, whether you're just alone or whether you're also lonely, because I think that there's also a level of freedom, especially when a relationship is causing you harm or pain uh, mm -hmm. and you need to put some distance or some boundaries between that. That spoke having that friend off to one side, but apart from your other friends and another group does kind of give you the freedom, right, to, to cut off that relation. Yeah. yeah. And it also speaks to that we're not socialized to have tough conversations with our friends. It's a lot easier to just, you know, back off, ghost, flake, bail, than have a tough, a tough vulnerable conversation with with a friend. So we're seeing we're seeing it play out all the time. Austin, can I build on something important that Anna just said about that change? Sure, Jeremy, get it in real quick. Yeah, so I, I think what Anna's pointing to is something I write about in my book that Zygmunt Bauman, uh, 1980s uh, Polish philosopher called liquid modernity, where mm. our references to who we are change so quickly now. And some, here's the interesting thing. Some people thrive in that fluidity. Some people really are paralyzed mm. by it. Mm -hmm. So not too long ago, say a hundred years ago, who we were, our identity in society was pretty much defined by three things our religion, our gender, and our social status. And it didn't right. change throughout our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Now, exactly as Anna said, it changes by the minute. We can be mm -hmm. anyone we want to be and then present ourselves and organize our network of community relationships around who we say we are. And that, exactly as Anna said, you know, offers tremendous power and flexibility for the people who enjoy that type of mm -hmm. fluid engagement. But others are very uncomfortable about it. They're nervous. They feel at risk for being rejected. And so we've kind of gotten a little bit polarized here in liquid modernity, where many people are just retreating a little bit cautious of the pain or the anxiety of being rejected, which, of course, you're vulnerable to as, to, as soon as you stick your head up out of the foxhole and declare who you are. And Jeremy Nobel, we got to leave it there, I'm afraid, author of Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. We also heard from Anna Goldfarb, author of Modern Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. We had some calls, but let me just say, Will called in, says, I was a pastor of a church. I created a community. I left due to a lot of the things that the uh, previous caller mentioned. That's a lot of disagreements over social issues, uh, but found new community through running clubs. Also pointing out Mel, who has kids who are just starting to have kids in their 40s. Mel's kid is 16, don't really have a lot in common anymore. Mel still trying to figure out who to hang with. This is Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross on a Friday. We got a Food Friday double feature coming up. Two great spots that you can visit 
during Ciclavia on Melrose this Sunday. We're going to talk to them. We're going to try some eats. Make sure that you tune into uh, Instagram, LAS Official, LAST Official, if you want to see some of those eats. We are back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross on air and live streaming right now. Instagram, LAS Official, LAIST Official. Seek La Via is this Sunday on Melrose Avenue. My wife and I love them. Great chance to close down the streets. Bicyclists, Angelinos will be free to bike the four and a half miles between Vermont and Fairfax on Melrose. And during that ride, you might get a little bit peckish. So we have two food spots to share with you that you might try along the route. First up, Stephen Sokolsky, co-owner of Osteria La Buca on Melrose and Wilton Place. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what's in front of me right now, uh, because it's beautiful. It smells beautiful. What is this? So that's our kind of one of our main staples uh, appetizer. It's our house-made ricotta. uh, House-made. Caramelized agave nectar, some fries, fried rosemary, and then our our baguette crostinis. Oh kind of real simple goodness. and easy, and uh, really representative of who we are—the fundamental Italian—and with a little California flair. And I understand that your restaurant has been in the game kind of a lot longer than other Italian restaurants of the caliber, right? Can you give us a little history lesson there? Yeah, uh, before I. Started working there in 2009. The restaurant went through a few expansions uh, and started out as a little hole in the wall uh, with 10 tables. And you had to walk through the the kitchen to go to the bathroom. Uh, and then it expanded uh, two times. Oh. And I was uh, the general manager working there and worked hard to build the restaurant up with um, my boss and best friend. And then... Uh, ten years after working there, uh, my partner and I uh, bought it and and grew it. So I want to describe this dish for folks. It's a, a beautiful thing of ricotta with a little kind of like a, almost like a bowl within it. With the is that the agave that's in there? Yes. And then it's sprinkled with uh, the rosemary. Uh, how do I make the perfect bite? I would just take you take the knife and get in okay. there and break the uh, the volcano crater, if you will. <laughs> Let the volcano open up and just spread it just on. Spread and, it on there and go to town. Oh my gosh! Uh, so who came up with this this dish? That was a chef from. We've had that on the menu for about uh, I'd say about nine years. 
it's kind of a team a team mm. effort uh, with everything in the restaurant, from cocktails wow. to wine to menu items. Oh my gosh! So I'll, I'll say everything blends together so perfectly, and you get the ricotta, you get the sweet, and then in comes the rosemary. Rosemary just kind of sits right on top there and finishes off the bite, really making just an incredible bite. Uh, what led you to do uh, house-made ricotta versus, you know, just buying it? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of our, our mantra is everything in-house. Uh, try a second bite. It's so yeah. good. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything's in-house. Everything's from farmer's markets uh, and or our, our own private farm in West mm. L.A., uh, and so we do and everything we can from bread to pasta to ricotta. Oh, my goodness. In-house. Talking right now um, with Stephen Sokolsky, co-owner of Osteria La Buca on Melrose and Wilton Place. For the folks just joining us, Ciclovia happening this Sunday. Lots of great spots to check out, but we love you here at LA, so we want to tell you the best ones to check out. Right now I'm eating this incredible uh, ricotta dish with uh, an agave. Is it an agave syrup? It's a caramelized agave nectar. Caramelized. Agave nectar, then it's sprinkled with rosemary. It's fresh. It's flavorful. So if somebody shows up on their bike, they've been biking all day, a little bit tired, uh, what should they come in and and get? What what are some of the great things on the menu? Signature dishes. Yeah. So obviously the house ricotta is real simple and clean. Uh, We have our house-made meatballs, uh, our Brussels sprouts, which we are really known for. Uh, oh. Our burrata dish is always banging. And then the star of the show is our, our house-made pastas. Every day, our pasta chefs roll out pasta and, and make every pasta. So our cacio e pepe, our bolognese, and our carbonara are kind of the the top three sellers. Uh, and then for lunch, we have, we have really great sandwiches and uh, chicken parm. All the staples uh, you'd find in a... Cal Italian restaurant. How are you gearing up for the Sunday? Because I've done just about every Ciclavia over the past few years, and I've noticed that at each one of the stops, there are just so many people <laughs> piled up, lined up, waiting for a table. Like they want that experience. Uh, so it could be a large rush of folks. But how are you preparing for that? Yeah, I mean we're we run pretty efficient. Uh, we've been doing this for a while, so we just throw an extra team member or two to help with us, and business as usual. Business as usual. Sorry, you caught me with a mouthful. <laughs> caught me with a mouthful here. Um, tell me a little bit about in your journey here as you've continued to grow your business. You also hit the pandemic. Pandemic difficult time for a lot of restaurants, and you managed to pivot to selling goods from your kitchen. What was that like? Yeah, we, uh, you know, our our ability is to to move fast uh, and make kind of quick, decisive moves to help our teams so So we were i think one of the first restaurants to offer a full online grocery store Uh, and so we rolled that out really quickly Uh, we started doing our own house-made goods Uh, in front of you you have our house-made calabrian chilies and oil i do Uh, is it super spicy not too spicy. Not too spicy. Sh- should I try it real quick? Sure. Okay, I'm going to do a jar open. It's a beautiful <laughs> jar. It says buka right on the front. Uh, so we do that. We did that, and we really doubled down on our community and our team. Uh, we didn't lay off anybody. We brought as many people who wanted to work back. 
uh, and we gave free food to our teams whenever they needed it. Fifty percent off to everyone in hospitality in the city. Amazing. We did free uh, pasta days. If you didn't, no questions asked, you could get a free bowl of pasta. Wow. Homemade pasta. So you were making the pasta and giving it away yeah. for free, too. Let me ask you, as, as I uh, try these uh, Italian peppers in oil, which it says great on everything, I'm getting that sense. Uh, what should I be tasting as, as I try this right now? I mean, it's, once again, simple. Mm. So it's just really well-prepared uh, Calabrian <laughs> chilies with, with olive oil. It's not, wow. not rocket science, just that great ingredients. Not rocket science. Just great ingredients. That's Stephen Sikulski, co-owner of <laughs> Osteria La Buca on Melrose and Wilton Place. It's one of the many spots that you can eat on Melrose uh, when it is closed to cars this Sunday for Cicla Via. Stephen, just incredible. I mean, Thank so you. refreshing. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for this ah, just wonderful dish. Thank you. Great to be here. It's Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Our Food Friday double feature continues in just a minute with a taste of friends. And I should mention that we're live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official. Stick around. Back in 60. It's Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Today we are focusing on the spots where you can nosh during Ciclavia on Melrose this Sunday. I should mention our food reporter, Gab Gibran, has a whole piece on this on our website, las.com. Not just the spots that we're talking about today, but also a bunch of other really incredible places that he has tried. It has been Gob tested, Gob approved. So if you want to eat well, if you want to eat good in the neighborhood, that's definitely a place to look if you do the event this Sunday. Joining me right now is Daniel Matteau, chef, owner of Maison Matteau. It is a walk-up window serving French sandwiches and pastries. I am so excited for this already. You can find it on Melrose between Harvard Boulevard and North Kingsley Drive, right next to the 101. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. There's three incredible things in front of me right now. There are some incredible-looking pastries, some croissants. Uh, and there's also, it looks like two sandwiches. I think I might start with the sandwiches, my savories yeah. before the sweets. Go for it. Uh, which one should I try first? I'll just ask you. Um, you can start with the classic, the jambon beurre, which it, is the ham. This one right sandwich. here. Uh-huh. Jambon beurre. Oh my gosh. This just reminds me of something that I would get when, like, when I was in Paris a couple of years there ago or something like that. Especially when you wanted a quick eat, you just go to the bakery and it had, uh, something like this. Uh, let me just start here. Uh, you're from the French Alps. Yeah, that's where I was born. So you're bringing the authentic stuff to us right now. I try. <laughs> Others try. You succeed. Um, there's a, a walk-up window, though, which I think is really great because when people think of French food, I either think of the mini cafes in Paris or you think of something that is more sit-down, a little bit more formal. Uh, you're not doing that here. What was the thought process? Uh, well, I opened during the pandemic, so that was one uh, one aspect of it was that uh, I was looking for something that was pandemic proof. Um, the window seemed like the best option, and uh, honestly, at that point, we didn't re- really know where things were going. So uh, I was really just uh, focused on be able being able to stay open, and it, it's worked out. 
And talk to me about the menu. Uh, this sandwich, obviously, it feels like a little bit of home, but what were you trying to channel with it? Uh, exactly that is just a little bit of home for myself personally. It was really kind of a selfish uh, uh, start to, to, to it all. But um, the menu is small and limited just because the place is small and limited. And uh, we make our own bread and pastries, and uh, that's what... Um, the, the menu really revolves around. I'm going to say, as I pick it up, the first thing that stands out to me right now is how soft the bread is. And I think here in America, we've gotten used to very hard bread. It's a baguette? It is. is it? So usually, the baguettes that I've reached for, unfortunately, usually you kind of brace yourself because it's going to be a little bit hard. And this is just pleasant. It's got little crisp ridges on the top, so clearly well-baked, but then it's also got the soft suppleness about that. Talk to me about this. Oh, well, it's fresh. It was baked probably like an hour and a half ago. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, I love this. Baked an hour and a half ago. So everybody's getting bread that's baked. Pretty uh, much with, from the, from the, the day. day, yeah. Um, that's I, I think that that's really part of uh, the success was uh, just that everything is so fresh and um, people might not always be used to having that and uh, it makes all the difference. I'm going to take uh, a bite out of this mouth-watering sandwich, but as I do, could you tell us uh, where you find the ingredients that match that, that meet your your level of you know your palate what you're looking for where do you find these ingredients well now there's a lot there's a lot of you know specialty food suppliers for mm. the restaurant industry mm. so uh, we're able to find mm. uh you know what we what we need um mm. Like for example, the 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 bread. Is that butter in here? Yeah, there's a lot of butter oh in my there. God. <laughs> yeah, those are my favorite words. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of butter in there. Sorry, please, I interrupt. Um, it 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 it's it's getting easier oh. to find you know imported things from France or or oh. or even ingredients that are made here, but with uh with the quality that that we expect uh as as French people, it's hard, but you can you can find some things and then. Like there are other things where we'll 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 just tweak, for example, the pickles. I don't make them, but I'll remarinate them. They're such a nice touch, just to make them, you know, give them the right flavor. Talking right now with Daniel Matteau, chef and owner of Maison Matteau, one of the uh, one of the great spots that you can visit uh, during Ciclavia uh, this Sunday, which will be on Melrose. I pulled up this other sandwich, which looks like it has pistachios. Yeah, so that's what is the sandwich? That's the brizola sandwich. So it's cured beef. Um, it's not as classic. That's this one's more of like a a, a creation. Um, mm. It's uh, just a lighter sandwich. This one doesn't have butter on it, and it's also uh, a non-pork option uh, for the menu. Um, and uh, yeah. where, where do you source the meat for this? It looks so perfectly thinly sliced. Uh, well, we slice the meat ourselves, and mm. this is a uh, uh, so the is. Cured beef wow. that's made in the USA. I'm getting some radio silence as I <laughs> savor this. Um, first thing that hits my palate is uh, the saltiness of the meat. The salt kind of uh -huh. comes through there. And then yeah, I just found a pistachio. And then there's um, like an herbal flavor. So there's a, a broccoli spread. Broccoli? Uh-huh. See, I would not have put my finger on that. Broccoli. Um... Really, some shaved Stellar. shaved fennel as well, and uh, preserved lemon sauce that we make. Wow, was this a, your creation? Okay. Yeah. 
before I let you go, and we got about one minute left to do it, you brought me an assortment of pastries. You're baking these too? Yeah. Okay. If if I tried nothing else, which one of these beautiful three pastries should I try here? Uh, well, you have a croissant, an almond croissant, and the pink praline brioche. Uh, the pink praline brioche bun is really uh, a, a so classic from where right I come from. Yeah. Okay. I got to so try <laughs> Gotta that try one you might classic. not find elsewhere. Um, Ciclavia, uh, a lot of people come, obviously, on bike. They're looking to eat something good. Uh, being a walk-up seems very advantageous in that sort of situation. Are you pretty excited for what's to come this weekend? I am. Uh, last year's, I think, was canceled, so I wasn't mm. able to see um, how, it, how, it, how it goes. But I'm, I'm expecting a lot of people, and we'll, we'll be making some special things, too. Okay, talking with Daniel Matteau, chef and owner of Maison Matteau. And your baked goods are on point, too, my guy. These are so good. Um, one of the wonderful places that you can uh, try out during Ciclavia this weekend, it is on Melrose and Wilton Place. And uh, you can read all about this on our website, too, laist.com. Gob Chabron has a great place on all the places you can eat this Sunday. Sorry, I'm also just enjoying this food as I go. I'm Austin Cross. This is Air Talk on a Friday. Thank you so much for spending the day with me. We are back next week with more Air Talk. Until then, Film Week coming at you next. Have a great weekend. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us, along with critics Manuel Betancourt. He's contributing editor at Film Quarterly and Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and the co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. We begin with Dune Part 2, which is opening with sneak previews this coming Sunday evening at IMAX venues all over Southern California. Uh, Denis Villeneuve back as the director, of course. Part one was such a huge smash. Uh, Christy, share with us what you thought of part two. Oh, it's incredible. And to see it in IMAX would just be an incredible treat. So if you can get tickets, jump on that. The second you get done listening to Film Week, go jump on tickets because it's going to get pretty sold out. Um, It's just as much as the first, if not more so, an incredible visual spectacle. The score, the cinematography, the costume design. But now Paul Atreides is, you know, stepping into his role as the Messiah, if that is indeed what he is. Um, It's got greater emotional depth than the first. 
first. It is every bit as awesome visually as the first. But um, all that world building is done, and they just jump right in. The new character additions to this one, including Austin Butler, who is terrifying as Fade Rotha. Um, Florence Pugh is very good in it, Christopher Walken. But um, it's just thrilling and harrowing. It's longer than the first, but it moves beautifully. Go get you some Dune 2. <laughs> two hours, 46 minutes, by the way, the running time on Dune Part 2. And uh, much of the uh, uh, cast from the first one. Was there a pause, do you know, between the the two parts? Or did they try and film these consecutively? So um, I believe that they were filmed at the same time. And it very much picks up exactly where the first Dune ends. And there's no previously on Dune. So you really need to have seen the first Dune <laughs> okay. kind of recently to know because they, they throw you right in there in the desert with, with Paul and Shawnee. So uh, Timothy Chalamet becomes a man before your very eyes in Doom Part 2. And next week on Film Week, we'll also be hearing from our critics as the movie goes into wide release. We'll hear some more details about Dune Part 2. Drive Away Dolls is in wide release. Ethan Cohen, half the Cohen brothers of course, is the director and co-screenwriter with Trisha Cook. Margaret Qualley uh, stars a Along with Geraldine Viswanathan and Beanie Feldstein. Christy, what do you think of the action comedy thriller Drive Away Dolls? Oh, this is a mixed bag. And it's a mixed bag of some very familiar stuff that we have seen. If you are a fan of the Coen brothers, as I very much am, they're my favorite filmmakers probably. This is Ethan Cohen on his own, directing and co-writing with his wife, Trisha Cook. And it is about these two lesbians who go on a road trip to Florida. They go down to Tallahassee, but there's a whole mix-up because they take the car that's actually meant for some other bumbling criminals, and there's stuff in the car that they don't know about. Um, It's got a lot of the bumbling, inept criminal stuff of Burn After Reading, for example. There's a pair of people after our main characters who are very much out of Fargo in that like they're bickering and they hate each other. There are these psychedelic mind trips of the Big Lebowski. And then there's all of that, like, you know, rhythmic, repetitious Coen Brothers writing, the thing that can be so thrilling about how certain phrases come back over and over again and have different meaning in different situations. Um, but we've seen so much of this done better before that it just feels like a like a sort of a watered-down greatest hits collection. Um, Margaret Qualley is kind of doing Austin Butler as Elvis here, right? <laughs> Speaking of Austin Butler, there's like a, a big, muscular kind of swaggering showiness to the role. Um, and Beanie Philistine does not get to do very much at all. And then you have like Coleman Domingo underused, Pedro Pascal underused, Matt Damon underused, like tantalizing stuff with a great supporting cast, but never really comes together. Drive away dolls, Manuel. Yeah, this is truly bonkers because I think when you describe it as sort of this like road trip, lesbian comedy romp from one of the Coen brothers, you're like, yes, I'm all in. I want the market quality playing a butch lesbian who's like has this sort of southern drawl I was like yes I'm totally Benny Feldstein like as the um, aggrieved ex-lover there's like so many parts of it that I really wanted to love and I really gravitated to but I think the difference and I, I'm glad you brought up like Fargo and Burn After Reading because there's a discipline to that comedy. And I think I think that's what was missing to me. This feels so unwieldy almost intentionally and it is very baggy and it's very messy and I just there's these interstitials that are like kind of 60s-esque and I just couldn't tell like it's it's set in the contemporary times but it has this sort of like weird psychedelic um interstitials and I just I didn't understand what a lot of what was happening um I will say they all seem to be doing they all seem to be having a great time um but 
yeah, to me, I just wanted I just wanted more discipline so that the comedy would land better rather than we found this joke and we're going to use it and then we're going to go somewhere else and <laughs> we're going to meet another bumbling idiot and they were all bumbling idiots. And so but but if raunchy lesbian road trip comedy from one of the Coen brothers speaks to you, I think I think you're going to find a lot of things to love. It does sound promising on paper. <laughs> it does. Even yes. if it didn't uh, show it on the screen. Drive Away Dolls in wide release is rated R. Ordinary Angels has a liver transplant at the center of the plot. Uh, Hilary Swank and Alan Richson star John Gunn is the director. Manuel? Um, I wrote on my notes, no thank you. And <laughs> that that probably uh, sounds very, very harsh, but I did not buy this uh, sort of kind of faith-based dra- faith drama where we're following this alcoholic woman, um, Hilary Swank, who one day decides that she's not going to be an alcoholic and that she's going what she's going to do instead is raise money for this liver transplant for this young girl that she has never met. Uh, it's based on a true story, and I I gather what I felt was that because it was based on a true story, the script didn't feel the need to explain why any of these character motivations made any sense. Uh, so it's like, well, the real woman did this, so Hillary Swank is going to do that. But it never sort of fleshes out why she would be driven to this, why she would, why this of all places, why this yeah, uh, this young girl, why this family would actually drive her to change her entire personality. It's very much like a spirit of the will and everyone, you know, it's a little bit maudlin. It's a little bit sentimental. Uh, Hilary Swank is doing all of the things. Um, I think she can be very captivating on screen and she's doing the best that she can, but this script truly is not doing her any favors. We're talking about Ordinary Angels. Christy? This is Hilary Swank's Aaron Brockovich role. <laughs> Isn't it? She even looks like her, yes. Right? Like the same kind of hair and like mini skirts that are too short and too tight for her for her age and just like a, a little too flashy, a little too tacky, a little too brash, but well-meaning, right? Oh. And like a bulldozer of a personality. I kind of bought <laughs> that she would take the alcoholic instincts and put them someplace else, right? That happens a lot with people who are in recovery. Like, you got to take that addictive instinct and, like, apply it to something else. So, like, maybe you're into running now or maybe you go to church all the time now or whatever it is. So for her, she's never really dealing with the stuff that makes her who she is. She's just putting it elsewhere, putting the energy elsewhere and putting it someplace else for good. I mean, the family is understandably a little bit like, huh? Like, why <laughs> Where are she you, come from? Why are you showing up in my life? Um, and a lot of this does seem kind of implausible and, as you say, maudlin, but it did really happen. There's a whole mm. like climactic thing involving a helicopter, and this is like before cell phones, mm. right? So like people are calling into a TV station to arrange a helicopter to get the transplant, and I was actually surprised at how little faith-based stuff Hmm. there is here because in the very first scene they do mention like prayer and and God. Um, This was written by Kelly Fremont Craig who wrote and directed Are You There God? It's Me Margaret which is excellent which is one of the best films of last year. So I feel like she maybe brings a recognizable humanity here and there to this that might not exist in other people's hands Um, but this is ultimately very like faith affirming. So if you want that and maybe a better made version of a faith based film, this could 
serve as that. We're talking about Ordinary Angels, starring Hilary Swank and Alan Richson. Joe Gunn directed. Kelly Freeman Craig wrote the screenplay. It's rated PG in wide release. The documentary The Ark of Oblivion is directed by Ian Cheney, uh, who also narrates the film. Christy? I love this movie, and Manuel, I have to thank you for putting <laughs> it at the top of your list, because I then made sure that I watched it. Yes. And I'm so glad I did, because I love it so much, and it works so beautifully on so many different levels. It's about this guy who is the filmmaker, Ian Cheney, and he is building a literal arc in his family's field in Maine, like an actual arc to put all of his stuff in. Because he realizes, like, I've got too much stuff. It's all building up. i got to put it somewhere. So in the very, like, intimate, literal sense, it's about storage. But he takes that as a launching pad for this, like, existential exploration of why we as humans feel the need to leave traces of ourselves behind, whether it is through, you know, passing on photos or filmmaking, literally filmmaking. Like, why must we record and keep things? Why do people collect weird things? Um, He goes into, like, tree rings and stalagmites and, like, an egg eco-toxicologist who trolls the Arctic waters for like remnants of pharmaceuticals that are left behind. It is fascinating. If you've ever wanted to hear Werner Herzog recite Ozymandias, (laughs) now is your chance. It's brilliant. Um, And it's, it's really playful given how like this is substantial stuff he's talking about. The form of it is really playful. There's a lot of stop-motion animation. There's a lot of cool stuff he does with vintage television sets. Um, I really liked it a lot. Ian Cheney is the director and at the center of the arc of Oblivion. Manuel, I'm not familiar with him. Has he done other documentaries? Yeah, and I, I'm so happy, Chris, that you enjoyed it because yes. I, as soon as I watched it, I fell in love with this movie. I love, especially documentaries that are driven by curiosity. And so at the heart of this is this question, are we insane to believe that anything can last? Like, if we know that this arc that I'm going to build is going to be gone in 100 years, why am I compelled to do it? If I know that my hard drive is going to erode in thousands of years, why do I try. And, and of course, this is a very human story. It's a very small story, and it's also a huge story. Um, there's a lot of conversations about what happens when you start thinking of geological time, which I think are can kind of be overwhelming, very erudite and intellectual. And he makes them so playful and so accessible. And he you know, invites his friends and his fellow documentarians and Werner Herzog, who's a, an executive producer on the film. And I just love that I never knew exactly where it was going to go. And he took me to you know, the fjords in the Arctic and salt mines in the Alps and ancient libraries in the Sahara. And it's just, I was just in awe at the fact that he was able to harness all of of those great conversations into something that I could recommend to anyone to watch and that they would be going along for the ride. And his parents are a hoot. Yes. <laughs> his parents are in it and they're these super funny, quirky, no-nonsense people who are so supportive of him building a literal arc in their backyard. <laughs> We're talking about the documentary, The Ark of Oblivion. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. About Dry Grasses, a Turkish drama. Uh, the film is directed by Nuri Bilge Salan Manuel. I... So talk, we talked about Dune and it being like 2 hours and 46. About Dry Grasses is, if I'm remembering, like, like 3 hours plus. And it's it's very patient storytelling, but I really enjoyed it. It sort of unravels at this like very slow pace. We're following uh, this art teacher in a remote village in Turkey who's a little bit um, fed up with where he's at in life and his 
his job and um, there's an incident with a student that may have gone that it may have become a little bit inappropriate and sort of starts unraveling his sense of whether he's being whether he'll be able to sort of get out of this town. Um, but at the heart, this is a story about, you know, what it, how can we find our way to live with our lives and how can we escape them? And is that a selfish pursuit? I think this is a movie to me. It was a movie about selfishness, about, you know, um, he has a lot of leftist left friends who really want him to be more engaged and be more political. And he's like, I don't have time for that. And I don't really want to. And am I selfish for just wanting to lead my life? Uh, he's not a particularly likable character, but I think the movie does a great job of sort of trying to understand where he's coming from. And it's sort of it, it, it almost feels like a short story because like it does. It happens only during a winter. And then it eventually sort of um, balloons into these like larger conversations about politics and about the country and about um, sort of hope and hopelessness and cynicism. I just really loved it. We're talking about the Turkish film about dry grasses. Yeah, this would be a great double feature with the teacher's lounge. Mm. Because it's about people who are doing this job that is thankless, and then there is an accusation that upends everything to their routine, and you don't really know who to believe. Like, we've watched it all, but we don't really know, like, what's true and what's not, and that's not important. What's true mm. and what's not is not the core thing here is, like, how does it affect this guy's life? How does it affect his worldview? He is a jerk. I mean, not <laughs> to the extent of, like, a Larry David-type figure, but there is a sense with, with everything he does that it's transactional, that it's, how does this affect me? I mean, especially given that he is in this job where he's supposed to be helping to shape the youth of, of Turkey here, um, he can't even fake it no. that he has a calling you know <laughs> he thinks he deserves so much more um what the filmmaker does is he sits in these long takes and lets the patience play out and uh the rhythms play out about dry grasses is at lemley's royal theater in west los angeles it's unrated many more films to come on film week on la is 89.3 We're just over a week away from our 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, beautiful historic venue. We're going to be joined by Christy and Manuel and nine other Film Week critics on stage. We'll see clips of all the Oscar-nominated films, and the critics will have at it, uh, responding to each other and what they have to say about the top uh, films that are, are uh, part of the nominations. Arrive early at the Orpheum on Sunday, March 3rd, and you can step into our new Film Week recording booth. This brand new, you want to give a shout-out to Manuel and tell him about a particular film that maybe he mentioned that you wouldn't have known about otherwise or tell Christy how much you appreciate her reviews, you can step right up to the Film Week recording booth right there in the lobby and we might use that on a future Film Week segment as well. So please make sure that you join us. Also we want to let you know that if you want to dress up in your Oscar finest you can do that too. We'll have a photo op in the lobby with a nice uh, Film Week background for you. You can do a step and repeat and have a friend take a photo of you all dressed up for the Oscar show. That's coming up Sunday of next weekend, March 3rd, 1 of the afternoon at uh, the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, just a week before the Oscars. Get your tickets now. Several hundred have already sold. We want you to get a good seat. Do it right now at laus.com slash events. That's laus.com slash events. We hope to see you there next Sunday, March 3rd. 
3rd. We're joined this week by our critics Christy Lemire and Manuel Betancourt. Next up is Io Capitano, which is an Italian drama. It's directed and co-written by Matteo Garone. Christy. This is one of your five nominees for Best International Feature at this year's Academy Awards. Speaking of our Oscar show, um, this is my least favorite of the five, actually, but very well made and well acted and ultimately very harrowing. It's about these two teenagers. They are cousins. They're living in Senegal and they get this dream, this crazy idea to travel to Italy to become pop stars. You, know, they, you see them writing songs. They'll hear a, a bit of dialogue. Someone will say something and they'll turn that into song lyrics. But they're not happy. They want more. They want fame. It's all very young and impulsive. So they get their money together and they, they figure out how to get hopefully smuggled into Libya and then eventually into Italy. And nothing goes as planned. And so we are with them every step of the way as they face different horrors, different awful, treacherous kinds of terrain. Um, the structure of it felt episodic to me for a long time like this happens and this happens and this happens I found the score a little intrusive needlessly so and kind of at a disconnect with the visuals quite frequently there are these magical realism flights of fancy sometimes literal flights of fancy that <laughs> felt very out of place to me I guess it's you know trying to be reflective of what they're thinking as they're trying to survive mentally but then the final section on the boat as they are crossing the Mediterranean, is shocking and so tense and so claustrophobic. The director will use long takes to really immerse us in what's going on with these people. Um, but it definitely picks up. So stick with it. If you're thinking like, oh, this is okay, it gets so much better. And the finale, that last shot and the line of dialogue that gives the film its title is quite powerful. We're talking about the Oscar-nominated film Io Capitano starring Sedusar and Mustafa Fall Manuel. Yeah, I think harrowing is probably the word that I would come back to to sort of describe um, this film. And it can be quite punishing to the point where he, Garone, really wants you to feel the horrors and the obstacles that people like these two teenagers uh, will endure to leave a life that they wish to leave behind and in, in order to imagine a better version of the life for themselves, which they can only imagine somewhere else. Um it's very topical, right? Like this is clearly depicting um, sort of migrant crisis in in Africa and Europe. But I think we could also think of it the same way the the kind of migrant crisis that, that's happening here in this continent. Uh, and I think it really puts us in the mind space of like, how far would you go, and how bad would your life need to be for you to uproot yourself and leave your mother and know that you may never see her again? And I agree with Chrissy that those that final sequence in the boat uh it's truly worth the watch we're talking about io capitano the film's unrated in select theaters the docu documentary uh Ennio is uh about the the great film composer uh, morricone uh the film is directed by giuseppe tornatore and well what do you think of Ennio? listen I love Ennio Morricone. Who and I think Exactly. <laughs> and I think if you say there's a documentary about Ennio Morricone, you're going to be like, well, regardless of it, I will, I will enjoy it. Uh, speaking of episodic, this is a documentary that sort of has him and he's, uh, he gave all these interviews back in 2020 uh, or right before he, he passed. And he has a lot of fascinating insights into his work and into um, how he did not just these like amazing scores that we all know, but hundreds and hundreds of others. He's the most, probably the most, one of the most prolific composers. But 
eventually the the documentary sort of struggles and becomes, and then I did this score, and this is what I did, and then I did the other score, and this is what I did. And, you know, I want him to tell me more about how he created the music in The Mission or The Good, Bad, and The Ugly or how he works with Tarantino. But uh, sort of as a film, it felt a little bit more like a masterclass than a documentary. I wanted a little bit more rigor. I wanted a little bit more sort of shape so that it didn't feel like, well, I'm just listening to him tell me about his course, which is, again, fascinating. Um, but I don't know that uh, a novice or someone who doesn't know Morricone would find a lot of um, interesting things to say, although there's a lot of great people and a lot of great talking heads. But We're talking about the documentary Ennio Christie. Yeah, he's very charming, isn't he? he yeah. He's a lovely, warm storyteller, and he gets choked up with the memory of things that happened many decades earlier. And it is an incredible who's who of voices here from Clint Eastwood and Quentin Tarantino to fellow composers like Hans Zimmer and John Williams and like a wide variety of Italian um, producers and people that he worked with. A lot of really cool 60s Italian pop songs yes. in here. That part's kind of fun. Um, but I dug the process of this. If you like process, he goes into how he came up with different like contrapuntal song <laughs> melodies and like this shouldn't work with this, but it does. And like, where did the like... Where'd the stuff come from that you know so well from all of his scores, like different sound effects? Um, so I enjoyed that, but it is ultimately so repetitious in the fawning over him. Like, clearly he's a legend, right? But we, the same thing, the beginning and the end is people over and over again saying the same thing over and over again. What's interesting is that one of his best known scores, the one for Cinema Paradiso, yeah. is one that they don't really go into very much, given that Giuseppe Tornatore directed this too. Right. Like, that's his film. Um, they go, really far into the mission and they go really far into why didn't he keep winning Oscars like that's, <laughs> that's that's part of it too that's like a running through line of like why is he not winning the Oscar he's clearly a legend um, it is it could be like a two hour film I yeah. think but this is like 247 wow yeah. <laughs> Ennio on Ennio Morricone from Giuseppe Tornatore, the director the documentary can be seen at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood Veselka, The Rainbow on the Corner at the Center of the World is a documentary about a New York City Ukrainian restaurant. Veselka, Krisky. Veselka is legendary. If you've ever been to New York or lived in New York, you know it's on 2nd Avenue there, and it's a hub of culture and amazing food and just a warm and welcoming place in New York City. And it became increasingly significant once Russia invaded Ukraine and became a place where people wanted to show their support either by just, you know, having dinner or donating diapers or donating money or whatever. So it goes into the whole history of this place, how it's been around for decades. The same family has owned it for three generations. And, um, how it has evolved as a hub of Ukrainian culture and food and life in this part of New York City. Um, I didn't realize how much it had shrunk. It was like many, many tens of thousands of Ukrainian immigrants who lived in this part of the east side of Manhattan. And now it's only down to like 20-something thousand. It's much smaller. Um, David Duchovny is the narrator and does a whole lot of very schmaltzy hand-holding in explaining this place and these people Speaking of too long, this is like an hour and 45 minutes. This would have been a nice, tight, hour-long film. It goes off in all these these deviant directions. When it's the most compelling is when it's about the people who work at Veselka, who are Ukrainian themselves, who have family who are still there, who are trying to get out, and how this place is a crucial connection for so many Ukrainian immigrants. So there's the substance and the heart of it is 
worthwhile, but there's a lot of like peripheral, like very maudlin feel good stuff happening here. Does it get into the food at all? Yes. The, okay, good. good. <laughs> Watch yeah. them make pierogies. So, all yeah. Right. I was going to say, it just makes me want to go to the yeah, saga. I, I have say. so many great memories of you know, there late too? nights. Yeah, I used to live in New York, so like I, I love late, a lot of late nights in Vasalka. And they talk about that too, how people will go to like CBGB, yeah. go see a band, and then like drunkenly stumble over to Veselka. So well, I'm sure that wasn't Manuel. <laughs> no, 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 never, never. <laughs> the Rainbow on the Corner at the Center of the World, a documentary directed by Michael Fiore, and it's uh, unrated at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Stop Motion uh, is uh, a film that uses stop motion animation, as you'd expect, directed by Robert Morgan, who co-wrote it with Robin King, Manuel. This is not a movie for the squeamish, and I am sometimes very squeamish. So we're following this animator who sort of starts losing her mind when she loses her mother, who is also this very famous stop motion um, animator. And the two of them were working on this kind of like dark fairy tale. And as soon as she loses her mother, and now she's able, now she's like, okay, now I'm gonna like finish this this movie by myself. Um, she starts having these visions, and she sorts uh, her animated. Um, figurines uh, start coming to life and start start egging her on to uh, become more deranged and there's a lot of self-harm and uh, there's a young girl who keeps telling her the story that now she keeps she needs to tell but like you need to create this figurine out of red meat and so there's a lot of like blood and gore and self-harm and I, I can see Christy sort of grimacing and that's that was me throughout the entire film I was like oh my god and it's um I, I found that it was as an exercise in tension, as an exercise in sort of the horrors and how do, how we deal with grief. Like it, it's very affecting. It's not quite my my style. I, I wanted, um, I think I wanted a little bit more. It's a little bit too small and it's very claustrophobic. We're mostly in her like makeshift animated studio with these like really creepy figures that I just wanted to get out of. But I think that also speaks to sort of the the strength of the. Of the filmmaking that uh, I really just wanted to be somewhere else for this entire <laughs> for that entire film, just as uh, and of course it has this like um, very violent, very uh, this is not spoiler alert. There's not a happy ending uh, in sight. So live action and stop motion yes. animation combined in stop motion, a horror film from the UK starring Ashling Franchosi. Robert Morgan is the director. It's rated R in select theaters. And finally, the documentary as we speak, rap music. On trial, J.M. Harper, the director, Manuel. So this is a fascinating documentary about something that I didn't really know that much about, which is the way that rap music and rap lyrics are continually being used by the justice system, both in the U.S. and the U.K., to prosecute rappers for um, even crimes that have nothing to do with their lyrics. So that there, a lot of places are using lyrics as character witnesses to be like, well, clearly they're singing about how they would, you know, kill someone else, and so obviously they robbed this uh, candy store. Like, and it's sort of ridiculous, um, but it speaks to, and you know, this is uh, bringing journalists, and we're following the rapper Kemba, who's sort of um, guiding us through this process, um, and they're. The, main thesis of the film is how this is yet another instance of how black art gets constantly criminalized uh, and how, you know, if we listen to a country song and they're talking about, you know, I killed my neighbor, you're like, yeah, I, I, I get it. Or if they're um, heavy metal, like we understand those lyrics to be fanciful feats of fancy. But somehow in rap, they get sort of really thought of as quite literal ways. We're talking about As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial, directed by J.M. Harper. The documentary begins streaming on Paramount Plus Tuesday of next week. It's unrated. Our critics this week 
week, our Manuel Betancourt of Film Quarterly and Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. They are two of our 11 critics who will be on stage coming up in just over a week. Sunday, March 3rd, we'll be at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles for our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. We'll be screening clips from all 10 of the Oscar-nominated Best Picture nominees. We'll be talking about all the major categories of the Oscars. There'll be a chance for members of the audience to ask questions of our critics who are on stage, and we want to make sure that you are there in the beautiful venue Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, 1 o'clock, exactly a week before the Oscars are given out in Hollywood. You can get your tickets right now, and I encourage you to do so at the earliest opportunity because they're going fast. Go to LAist.com slash events to get your tickets. That's LAist.com slash events. We want to see you there Sunday of next weekend, March 3rd, 1 in the afternoon at the historic Orpheum Theater. Coming right up, we'll talk with the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Poor Things, Tony McNamara, on Film Week. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. The comedy fantasy Poor Things is Oscar-nominated in 11 categories, including Best Picture, Director, Actress, Supporting Actor, and Adapted Screenplay. It's the coming-of-age story of young Bella brought to life with an infant's brain by a brilliant and unorthodox scientist. Played by Willem Dafoe, by the way, who was with us a few weeks ago on Film Week. Let's listen to a selection from Poor Things before we talk with its screenwriter, Tony McNamara. In this scene, young Bella runs off with worldly lawyer Duncan Wedderburn, played by Mark Ruffalo. They cross the continents in their whirlwind romance, but the more Bella experiences, the more she has questions about those around her, including Wedderburn. These two are fighting, and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changeable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You were in my son. What? 
that uh, scene from Poor Things, a much Oscar and critically appreciated film. Joining us is the nominee for Best Adapted Screenplay, the writer of Poor Things, Tony McNamara. He adapted the script from a novel by Alastair Gray. Tony McNamara, welcome to Film Week. Hi, thanks for having me. Congratulations on your second Oscar nomination. You were also nominated for Best Original Screenplay for The Favorite, also directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Emma Stone. Describe the way that your work dovetails with the vision of Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, I think we have a very we have a very similar sense of humor and a similar kind of. Uh, sensibility generally i think um so you know we're slightly different i guess in a lot of ways but i think he he has a very singular way of looking at the world and directing and he's also like quite a uh fearless director so i think for a writer um he gives you a lot of freedom and you're you're very set free to kind of like not worry about what the the market or any, you know, it's, it's really like, let's just tell this story as kind of as we should as wildly and as entertainingly as possible. And um, so he's sort of great to work with in that way. So we spend a, you know, we spend a lot of, a, a lot of time together and um, we just seem to kind of hit it off and our sensibilities of my script and him being, you know, one of the great directors of the this generation for sure, if not of all time is uh, you know, it's a, it's a great thing. Well, and to paraphrase him, uh, he's making films that that he wants to watch that are his sensibilities and sort of yeah. hopes the audience is is able to appreciate them as well. Is that your approach as a writer? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I think that is one of the reasons we get on so well. Is essentially I'm trying, <laughs> essentially I'm trying to entertain myself in my office. Mm-hmm. Um, and also writes, you know, I'm I'm aware, like you are as a screenwriter, you are serving an audience and you know that. But on some level, it frees you up creatively to not be a slave to that because you can't know what an audience want. You know what gives you joy and you know how to, you know, you kind of test the story on yourself. And, um, and I think that is one of the reasons we get on because we are very free in that way. Well, you know, that... Um, that, you know, the audience will come and they'll make what they make of it, but we've just got to make a film that's very honest to ourselves and and kind of just try and make something unique, I guess, each time. You, As an audience member, you feel with Yorgos's films, him pushing to that extreme, uh, not being particularly concerned, well, what are the conventions of films? He'll, he'll blow right past that. And so I, I wonder, in your style as a writer, do you at all temper that, or do you add fuel to that proclivity on his part? <laughs> I think a bit of both. I think... I think a bit of both. I think sometimes we we do a bit of each to each other, um, but no, I think that is our both our ways is to kind of just push it, you know, and not even push it in a. Uh, I think we're never trying to push something other than we want to tell the story as entertainingly as possible. And I know he wants to make a piece of cinema that's interesting to him and that. Uh, is challenging to him that is kind of like what lenses will I use and how do things work and there's a lot of play in it you know there's a lot of experimenting and um, 
and just kind of playing. It's also very methodical. Like we're very meticulous about the story and making sure it's understandable and making sure we're telling it as well as possible. Um, but at the same time, there's a kind of freedom to how we do it, how their process works, which I think is why they sort of pushed the envelope a little bit. We're talking with Tony McNamara, two-time Academy Award-nominated screenwriter uh, for his most recent project. It's the much-acclaimed Poor Things, nominated for 11 Oscars, including Tony for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Tony, you adapted uh, the book uh, that I know Yorgos Lanthimos had, had identified as something of interest for him many years ago, even meeting uh, with the novelist uh, when he was still living. And and uh, when you were adapting this, how much freedom did you feel like you had to depart from the original text? Uh, a lot, because... Um... In the original book, it's a very, uh, it's a great book, but it's a lot of it is about Scottish nationalism, which, um, and a lot of Bella, the main character of the film's story, her whole story is told uh, by the men. And so you're never inside her story. You never go on the journey kind of physically with her. You just kind of hear from letters what what they, they think she's happening. And so... Yorgos and, and you know Yorgos wanted to, and once I read it, I was totally like in agreement. We wanted to make the film about Bala, and so in, in doing that in itself, it it meant we would have to invent because a huge amount because the internal, you know, because her story from her perspective isn't there in the book. Um, but lots of the sort of events of you hear about things that happen to her, and she writes occasional postcards. But that's that's all. So I think we were freed in a way that made it very easy to choose. You know, had a great premise, and then in some things we loved. Uh, but then there was a lot of invention, which is sort of what we wanted because we wanted to make a piece of cinema and not kind of like just a representation of the book. We were always trying to make something that was sort of inspired by the book, but it was a very much a movie separate and in its own right. And the third act is a complete departure from the book, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because we did have a bit more of what the the book was, and uh, we did eventually. We just didn't like it, and um, it was one of those things. We had it for a little while, and and then it was like, oh, we need a completely different view of it. And then it came out of the fact that the new third act was. I think I said, what if she chose to go back to where she came, you know, where the original sort of scene of the piece was, and then it became fun, you know, it became a different ending and then the, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was. Then we sort of invented the whole story with Alfie and going back there and um, all of that kind of stuff, which was great because it, it was funny and Chris came in and did an amazing job being a character coming into a movie two hours in and still kind of, inhabiting it so perfectly. Uh, we have just short time before we break, and uh, coming up a little bit later, I want to ask you about the dialogue you wrote for Bella, because you begin from first words and take her all the way through adulthood. But but just real briefly, to what extent does your screenplay suggest the elaborate production design we see in the film? Oh, not not to that much, not to what it became. <laughs> I think it suggests we I knew it was a fantasy because Yorgos kept saying that, but I I'm sort of much more responsible for the story and the dialogue and the character. And um there was suggestions of, 
you know, uh, the machine that he has for his stomach and and the and the animals and all of that's in the screenplay. But what Shona and James and Yorgos came up with and Holly in costume was just like another level of fantasy that um, was extraordinary. And that's sort of one of the wonderful things about the film. Everyone's talented and got all this freedom. And, you know, as you say, just kind of becoming kind of reaching for the sort of stars on what's possible and hoping it all comes together, you know. And I was stunned when Willem Dafoe told me that these were sets, that there's very little CGI that was involved. Yeah. That boggled my my mind. We'll continue our conversation with two-time Oscar-nominated screenwriter Tony McNamara. We're talking with him about Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. We'll be back on Film Week in just one minute. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Oscar-nominated screenwriter Tony McNamara of Poor Things, the Yorgos Lanthimos film, with a total of 11 Oscar nominations. Uh, Tony, let's talk about the dialogue because you have the opportunity here. This may be the only time in your career you're writing for someone from infancy through adulthood. So what are the ways that you tried to peg the language to her years of development? Yeah, it was one of the big challenges was creating the dialogue for the whole film and creating this sort of mix of contemporary historic, you know, but period feeling dialogue, but also a bit of an absurdist world. But Bella in particular was, uh, her dialogue was how you were going to track more or less her development and her the arc of how she was understanding things intellectually. And so it was sort of like going back to the start and thinking, Okay, she doesn't, and she was also not in society much, so she didn't know words. So I knew she wouldn't know words for things, so sometimes she would experience something and just make up the word for it, and as little toddlers did. It probably helped that I had a three-year-old at the time. Perfect. Um, and then and then it was just that. It was like she would add words. So it was an evolution of her dialogue. So it's sort of a, her dialogue changes character sort of, subtly all the time but sort of quite pronouncedly at certain periods especially as she changes location on her sort of trip around the world so it was really like a a real um constant honing of that for a couple of years and then and then in rehearsal with Emma listening to it all with Yorgos and us the three of us kind of working out if there was a word that was too sophisticated in that sentence or she needed a bit, you know, as something that wasn't sophisticated in that because she wasn't there yet. So it was a constant, um, it was just a real, uh, I don't know, effort to kind of, joyful effort to kind of make sure that there wasn't a word out of place that the audience would go, well, she, why does she talk like that now? Like it had to have an incredible mm-hmm. level of consistency, but it also had to feel completely like ad hoc, and mate and sort of like just like she was just making stuff up you know so that was a big challenge of it but also i'm i'm a bit of a dialogue maniac i love dialogue i love writing it and so um it wasn't it was a sort of joyful burden 
Uh, you've written now uh, screenplays for three films, Emma Stone, uh, Cruella, and The Favorite, in addition to Poor Things. Are you ever thinking of of her as you're writing it, or strictly character? Similarly with Willem Dafoe, or, or you know, as you're writing, I, and I don't even know how much casting was done at that point as you're writing the characters. But but does the actor uh, come into your mind at all? Uh, not really for me. I think I have a, um, you know, I kind of have a voice for the character. Like in my head, there's a voice for the character. Um, and so I don't really think, even if I know it's Emma, like I did on Cruella, I didn't on the favorite or on this until I knew it was Emma very early on this after the first draft. But uh, no, because I think it's just, I know her sensibility and mine tally up anyway. And tonally, we we kind of get each other. But I think as a as a writer, I've always just heard dialogue. I think that's why I say I like dialogue so much because I, I hear I hear it said, you know, and it has a tone and it has all that. And so for me, it's uh, I don't really I just um, then find out who's going to do it, and you know, I'm grateful <laughs> and well, I and, hope it works. And this had to be a, an exciting challenge because you're writing something that's in period. But you're trying to make it relevant, uh, and and the humor come through to a modern audience. So that must that must have been kind of fun to come up with the type of expressions and language that you wanted to to be featured. Yeah, I think it's it's really fun. It's something I you know I did it on the great and the favorite a little bit. It's uh, it's fun because you're kind of trying to construct. I knew Yorgos had a big you know this world was going to be very fantastic in a way and so the dialogue had to have a sort of big quality you know it had to be funny and it had to have a sort of fantastic quality it had to speak to the sort of imaginative world imagined world that he was creating so I was sort of aware of that and it being funny and that it had to be period to suggest we we're in that make it real that we we're in that in a period but also I wanted it to have a contemporary spirit and words that let an audience inside it, let a contemporary audience go, oh, I'm experiencing this as if it was me because there's enough, there was nothing in the dialogue keeping you out. It was sort of bringing you in. You uh, have to have a great deal of of uh, faith in, in your words as you've written them, but then you never know how an actor is going to read those lines, what they're going to bring to it. So what's it like for you when you see Mark Ruffalo with the comedic, chops that he brought to this which you know probably surprised a lot of people to see what he brought to that character uh or or the the pathos that defoe brings to god that character what's that like for you to see it happening oh it's sensational that's like when you're a writer and you walk into the rehearsal room and you know emma mark willem rami you're just like well it's a it's a dream come true i mean it's sort of like um, because you just get to hear these words and they're so a they're all they're all incredibly lovely people, but also they're just such great artists and you get to watch them play with it and you get to see it work because partly because they're brilliant, partly because it works, um, and and it's just a great feeling to know that you gave them something as well. It's like your job to give them something great to say, and so and that works and lets them create a character and an arc and and feel like they're being supported by the script and i feel like that's that's a really great feeling as a screenwriter 
you've had an opportunity to write you know so many uh, scripts involving prominent and big personality women i mentioned uh, the favorite and cruella and poor things plus your your series um that streamed the great on Catherine the great so um are you looking for a change of pace with your next project or is something in line um um, am I looking for a change of pace? No, I'm not necessarily. I don't really think about it that way. I mean, I think the next thing I have is a, is actually a two-hander, a, a contemporary comedy. But, um, yeah, I don't mind. I mean, I kind of love, I just see if I, if I really am into a character or, yeah, I don't really kind of do it in a conscious way. It's just like, oh, that seems cool. That seems a cool story and a great character and, um, so yeah, it just but, seems like you have such an affinity for strong women characters in the work that you've done. Yeah, I guess so. I don't think of it that. I just think they're great characters. I don't, you know, and I know it, it, it's not that I'm being disingenuous about it. It, it is, they are great women characters. And I feel like in, in what you're looking for in a way is as a writer is great obstacles to help your characters rise and be great and kind of have a lot to and I think women in history and women characters often have a huge amount of obstacles and and big stakes with them and have to kind of work extra hard to kind of and kind of create themselves on an epic level to kind of beat some of those obstacles and so I I find that really interesting for characters and they're not perfect and they're not Mm -hmm. um I, you know, they're not idealized. They're very flesh and blood humans like Bella, who's sort of, you know, she's wonderful and adventurous and optimistic, but she's also at times cruel. And she's also at times a bit of a brat. And, you know, so I, I love characters that are very complex, I guess. Tony McNamara, thank you so much for talking with us today about Poor Things, uh, your screenplay that's Oscar nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. We appreciate it very much and look forward to what's coming next and talking with you in the future. You too. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank you. your time. Thank you. Tony Bye. McNamara, two-time Oscar nominee. Screenplay of Poor Things, the most recent one. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle reminding you that our Film Week Academy Awards preview 22nd annual edition is coming up at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets are available now. All 11 of our Film Week critics will be on stage with me. We'll look at clips from all the Oscar-nominated films, including Poor Things, Tickets at LAist.com slash events. That's LAist.com slash events. From all of us at Film Week, have a great weekend. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.